Well, in my recent unexpected free time, I've been uh, really reflecting on the deep, profound teachings of Buddhism, of our school of uh, causes and conditions, how things come to be. And Shakyamuni Buddha uh, taught extensively about this. The way to liberation is to understand causes and conditions. And the uh, frequent demonstration of our delusion is how we really don't understand the causes and conditions. And a, an even greater demonstration of our delusion is that we think we understand causes and conditions. But this is our conventional realm. And abiding in the conventional realm is really important for liberation. We have to understand how this works. I uh, went back and studied one of our great ancestors of, of Mahayana Buddhism, the greater the great vehicle Buddhism and um, the, one of the, the source teachers of Zen, so Nagarjuna. And he wrote extensively about causes and conditions. He said, uh, so these ancient scholars, he was about the first century, common uh, era, first century, very brilliant, very important scholar, monk, and he said, there is no such thing as cause because things don't have uh, the ability to transfer power. So some things that we say, and when, I'm going to talk a little bit later about the great monk, scholar monk, Thich Nhat Hanh, who passed away recently. And his work on causes and conditions is equally important. I mean, it's all present. Um, but Nagarjuna, uh, uh, wrote that there are no causes because nothing has the power to transfer something. Everything that is happening now contains all things. And they're in a mix. They're in a flow. They're in a giant web of interconnectedness, we say. So everything's already here. Um, but conventionally, we think that something causes something else. He made me angry. He cut me off in traffic. Um, I fell down. <laughs> <laughs> I broke my arm. Um, I did fall down and broke my arm. <laughs> but what's the cause of that? What's the cause? So that was a pretty good example because there is no single cause. I can't say somebody um, came and did that, it was a, it's a nexus of cause. And we can watch how our minds work when we try to um, interpret the causal nexus. But Nagarjuna said that there are no causes, there is no, there's no ability, to, there is no moment that contains power to make another moment happen. It's all an arising in a new moment. But there are four different kinds of conditions, he said. He said there's the efficient condition, there is the percept object condition, there is the dominant condition, and then there is the uh, immediate condition. Okay, so he can get really complicated because they're scholar monks, they didn't have anything else to do. <laughs> <laughs> but it's fun to figure out, you know, 
uh, where the various conditions, um, how they interact and how they flow together. And also we can try to, we notice that there's a tendency, again, this is our human thing in the conventional realm, to pinpoint one or two. But all of these uh, exercises or all of these teachings are help, trying to help us, you know, broaden our openness to conditions. However, the reason for broadening our uh, understanding of the conditions is to liberate us from suffering. It's not just an academic exercise. It's all part of the, the basic teachings of our school, the Four Noble Truths. All of this is about liberating us from suffering and waking us up to our true nature. So, uh, what did I say? What's the first one? Efficient. Efficient. Oh, very good. <laughs> 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 Efficient conditions are the things that, like, right there, make it um, uh, happen. So, like, because there's a candle, we can light it. Because there's um, uh, electricity, we have lights and things like that. The efficient conditions are right at the. They're not the wider array. The percept object condition, this is like very basic, important Buddhist psychology. Because there is stuff out there, um, it, it interacts with our mind. Okay, So we've got all this data in our alaya, our storehouse consciousness. And then it kind of turns, and I was looking this morning at the um, beautiful flowers. Was it a Sally week? So looking at the that percept object, perceptual objective thing, stuff over there, my storehouse consciousness, all of us can say flower. We share this conventional realm. And some of us know iris. We share that conventional realm. The white thing I don't know. Snapdragons. Right now, see, we've watched a transformation of my mind. <laughs> and always, maybe most of us have just had a transformation of our mind. This is how our minds actually work. We don't have a bunch of solid um, crystals waiting to be turned. It's always transforming. It's always transforming. The, the basis of our experience in the world is vast. It's full of things we aren't even necessarily aware of. And then something triggers it. Oh, iris. So those, that's the percept object condition. And the next one is the uh, dominant condition, which for Nagarjuna is the purpose for which this moment is aiming. So it might be, um, uh, what is the condition of this moment? My purpose is to um, <laughs> wake you up. <laughs> All of this is aimed toward, um, you know, lessening the suffering of the world. And to, uh, for Nagarjuna, the path to that is to deeply understand conventional reality Without a basis in the conventional reality, ultimate reality cannot be conceived. Okay? So a lot of our Dharma talks here are really to get us to accept 
our conventional views, that we're living in conventional reality. Convention means we get together in a convention and we agree, we agree what reality is. We get to know it. And then um, below that, happening simultaneously all the time, is the other truth, ultimate reality. So Nagarjuna is considered the founder of the middle way school. A lot of you have heard that, you know, this is called the middle way. There's a middle way. Middle way between extremes. And this middle way is that we live in both the conventional and ultimate reality. And ultimate reality is where we're deeply interconnected. There's no separate self. There's no um, uh, me, you, subject, object. It's all completely flowing all the time. It's ultimate reality. And once we accept conventional reality, we we start to see underneath ultimate reality swelling. And Nagarjuna um, also emphasized that it's not that ultimate reality is better than conventional reality. It's not uh, that conventional reality is sort of a lesser cousin and we understand it so that we can drop it and live in the flow of ultimate reality. Ultimate reality is always happening. And then knowing that is what enables us to really see each other for who, who we are, see ourselves who we are, because ourselves are another thing. Yourself, I suggest, you see from a conventional view. You already have ideas about yourself. Other people probably see you in a much more liberated way. You see yourself. So the purpose is liberative. And the purpose is to help us get to this world where we experience ultimate reality, that flow, and then willingly step back into conventional reality. So that, you could say maybe that Dogen's energy was really about this, um, this soft barrier, not really a barrier, between the ultimate and the conventional. So all, a lot of Dogen, Genji, founder of Sotazen, Japan, is about um, encouraging us to see ultimate reality in each other, Buddha nature, and then to act in the conventional realm to benefit everybody. So that was the dominant. And then the fourth is... Medium. Medium. Very good voice. <laughs> <laughs> Media is very interesting in Nagarjuna because it's sort of like that's the, um, should I say this? Yes, that's kind of like the laundry basket. Everything is in the media. It's like uh, all the things that made it happen. The fact that there's a building, the fact that there's a floor makes this moment possible. The fact that we have a schedule and now is the time. All these are the immediate conditions. But the more open we are to experiencing our lives, the broader that gets. So the conditions for anything happening, the immediate conditions are wider and wider and wider and wider. And it's beautiful, but it can be, um, uh, what would you say? It can be a little destabilizing when we realize how many things come together to make any event happen. So to come back to remember 
it's not just to lose track of causes and conditions, it's to liberate ourselves from suffering. This is why. And liberate each other. And liberate each other from our habit, energy, conventional views of self, which are so limiting. Whatever you think about yourself, it's limited. Whatever you think about your uh, habit energies and what you're doing, I suggest it's pretty limited. Unless you are right now coursing in the ultimate. And if you are right now coursing in the ultimate, you are not hearing me. (laughs) (laughs) If you are hearing me, you are in the conventional, which is beautiful, beautiful realm. This is this is the realm we share. So how do we um, approach this realm of conditions? How do we decide what's happening in a moment? Um, our great, great, great teacher, Thich Nhat Hanh, because of Thich Nhat Hanh, this group started. Because of Thich Nhat Hanh, many groups started. An amazing, important being in the world. Amazing. We're so lucky that he lived such a long time, wrote so many books, had such a profound influence on our world. So lucky. I, uh, I didn't remember this, um, but um, when he was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, uh, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King made the nomination. They were friends. So Thich was a young monk during the Vietnam War and advocated peace, say some more about that, but um, he and the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King were friends and talked about nonviolence and peace. And um, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's junior's life was cut short, tragically. But Thich Nhat Hanh got to live and live and live until just a couple of weeks ago. Just teaching and teaching. He also was... Um, able to articulate these profound principles of attending to conditions and attending to the transformation of mind in a way that we can really understand. So he made this clear, but his writings are very deep. He was studying some of the most esoteric um, Buddhist texts there are and translating them and using words that we can understand. So one of the words that he liked to use to attend to the moment is mindfulness. So Thich Nhat Hanh is the one who started saying, well, this factor of the path we can use. And then his student, I'll just say as an aside, his student, John Kabat-Zen, doctor, um, picked that up and dropped all the Buddhist stuff so that people wouldn't be put off by it and turned it into mindfulness practice that now people think was invented by uh, John Kabat-Zinn, <laughs> which is great. I'm sure Thich Nhat Hanh thought, well, that's fine, because the most important thing is that people use it to liberate themselves from suffering and to notice their minds. So for uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, this, this activity of being present with what's happening means being present with what's happening in you. So to be present with what's happening with you right now, you just go this or there. Other factors of the path of liberation, we all know, right view, right intention, right speech, 
I'm sure I, I shouldn't say that. Back up. <laughs> <laughs> don't all know what the eight factors of the path are, but I'm going to say them so that they gradually. Now this will be transforming your minds. So that you right view. Let's all say it together. Right intention. Right view. Right intention. Right speech. Right action. Right livelihood. Right effort. Right mindfulness. Right concentration. So those are the factors of the path that are in, in your moment of consciousness right now. They are there. This is the teaching of the Buddha. They are already there. And then mindfulness is always present. If you're conscious, it's always present. But it can be um, recognized as a, as a superpower to be able to be mindful of what's happening in your mind is a superpower, which you already have. And so you can be present as your mind transforms. You can be present as you learn the word for that flower, which is snapdragon. That's a superpower. I watched myself learn what that flower is. And you can be present when you notice what's happening in you right now. So, all of us right now, pretty much, I would say, some of you are bodhisattvas of a high, high, high level of development. I'm not going to name you. <laughs> <laughs> the rest of us, uh, when we observe what's happening in our mental continuum right now, have a conventional view of what's happening. We also have access to the ultimate view of what's happening, which is why we do these retreats in nature, things that really allow this transformation to become more obvious to ourselves. But most of us sit there thinking, I'm this, I'm that, I'm this, I'm that, right? What Thich Nhat Hanh in Transformation at the Base wants us to do, and he says it repeatedly, um, to know whatever you're feeling right now. Let's say, he, since he, he became a monk during the Vietnam War, he was very concerned with our habit of anger, so that he uses as, as an example all the time. So let's say um, anger is present, let's say. He would say, if you have a moment of anger, somebody's just cut you off in traffic, somebody's just said a rude thing to your dog. About <laughs> 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 <Doubt> your dog. <laughs> um, a little anger happens. What Thich Nhat Hanh really wants us to work with is that also non-anger is present at the same time because everything is present. So since he did emphasize anger so much, that's the example. Anger could be present, could be very, very strong. But what he wants you to do is take that mind and look for the non-anger, which is also completely present. Or other things that we have, fear, shame, jealousy, greed, all those things. Also, uh, courage is present and, and total self-confidence. That's why dogs are so great. Absolutely unselfconscious in all these gross sounds that they make. <laughs> it's really great to be with four-footed beings who have no shame. <laughs> Um, so, shame, moment of shame comes up, which is actually a wholesome uh, mental factor in Buddhism because 
without shame, we wouldn't be able to tell that we've just done something that we don't want to do. But without, um, what's the other one, shame? What's the other bad thing? Guilt. Yeah, without guilt, we wouldn't have that little message that that's something we don't want to do. So shame and guilt are considered wholesome mental factors. Uh, we just don't want them to conventionally become a dominant habit energy. So they come up, but once they become dominant habit energy, we need to look for antidotes for those. So Thich Nhat Hanh really, really gave us the gift of mindfulness to be present with this thing, this us which already has non-anger, non-greed, non-delusion. It already has love and joy and not suffering. It already has incredible generosity. It already has total liberation. That's what's walking around in here. And then people like Nagarjuna, Vasubandhu, Dogen Zenji, Thich Nhat Hanh, that's what he saw when he looked out at the crowd of people. That's what he saw total liberated being and the suffering of that liberated, liberated being was caused by habit energy and conventional views of the self. So I want to, I want to read now a little tiny bit of, I want to read a poem of Thich Nhat Hanh because in his time, as well as in ours, we're really nice. And then there are these people out there who are really terrible, causing a lot of trouble. <laughs> so we're going to be nice to each other, but them? I don't know. I don't know if we're going to be nice to them. <laughs> so he had this experience of having left Vietnam. And after a while, he wasn't allowed back in because he was considered a troublemaker with all this peace talk. And he had heard about some of the people who stayed behind who were just uh, social workers. They were just aid workers in Japan, excuse me, in, in Vietnam. And um, forces on both sides of that war were killing the aid workers. So he heard about that and said, as he often said, um, this is really hard one. Don't get angry. Even if they're killing you and your family, protect your mind. So I'm going to read this powerful poem he wrote. Here, he, he, he also wrote a little uh, introduction to it. He said, in 1966, after I had already left Vietnam, I suffered a great deal when I received news of the killings of these social workers. I did not know whether our social workers were capable of reconciling in their own minds with the killers. I wrote this poem. Promise me, promise me this day, promise me now, while the sun is overhead, exactly at the zenith, at the zenith promise me. Even as they strike you down with a mountain of hatred and violence, even as they step on you and crush you like a worm, even as they dismember and disembowel you. Remember, brother, remember, sister, man is not our enemy. 
the only thing worthy of you is compassion. Invincible, limitless, unconditional. Hatred will never let you face the beast in man. One day, when you face this beast alone, with your courage intact, your eyes kind, untroubled, even as no one sees them, out of your smile will bloom a flower, and those who love you will behold you across 10,000 worlds of birth and dying. Alone again, I will go on with bent head, knowing that love has become eternal. On the long, rough road, the sun and the moon will continue to shine. So that poem comes to us across 10,000 miles of deep, deep, deep practice and deep acceptance of our nature. Nature. We all have this potential to be cruel. We all have the potential to be unforgiving. We all have the potential to turn away. But we also have this potential to see the world with absolutely boundless compassion. So as we look at ourselves, remember we see ourselves conventionally. We see others conventionally. We need to accept that. And we also need to ground ourselves in the ultimate where we can see the world the way Thich Nhat Hanh sees the world. Thank you very much. <laughs>